This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. You know, I don't know what comes up in your mind when you hear the words prophets and prophecy. Probably for some of you, uh, because of your experience in the past, there's this sense of mystery and intrigue. Maybe for others of you, because you've been burned with the false prophets, there's a laughable kind of cynicism that sits in, sets in when you think about this whole issue of prophecy. Perhaps you think of uh, men of old with long robes and even longer beards with a staff in hand who are denouncing kings and queens and nations for their sinful behavior. And in the midst of that, they speak forth the prophecy of some event that they feel is certain. And then after a period of time, when that event actually takes place, suddenly they're treated like gods. They have this incredible authority granted to them. Or perhaps what you think of when you hear prophecy and those kind of things because of your background, you think of kind of a dark room, people around a table, holding hands, chanting around a crystal ball something like that, or maybe it's because you've read the ancient oracles of Nostradamus, or maybe even some more recent ones from one Gene Dixon. Or perhaps your encounter with prophecy is leaflets on your car telling you that the end of the world is about to take place. Or maybe it's people selling their possessions, some of your friends a few years ago, sure that the rapture was about to take place in 1988, or maybe it's swollen bodies in Jonestown. That's your view of prophecy. Or more recently, the predictions of God destroying the city of Orlando because of Disney World's commitment to gay day. All kinds of things, images, are conjured up when we think of the word prophecy. Or maybe yours is a more settled image, one of just an ordinary person in ordinary circumstances with an honest heart and a good life and an authentic spiritual experience who suddenly, maybe dramatically, is spontaneously called by God to go speak forth with courage His Word. There's all kinds of images around prophecy and prophets. For some, it's love of prophecy. For some, it's hatred. For some, prophecy is celebrated. For some, it's ridiculed. For some, it's revered. For some, it's shunned. For some, it's awesomely accurate. For others, it's dreadfully wrong. They've had their pockets emptied. They've had tragic lives because of it. Because in the midst of all of this, there is the true and the false. And our question that is begged today is, well, really, are there any prophecies are real? And when I say that, I meant authentic. I mean coming from the other side. I know that there are people from time to time who make a prediction. They're futurists, and they make a statement about something that's going to happen, and it does. But theirs is more earthbound, assembling the evidences of which they can gather and then guessing forth and guessing rightly, and then they're hailed as heroes. No, I'm talking about authentic prophecy, the kind of the other side, where eternity breaks into history. And someone or some thing is glimpsed of the future as it will be. You know, with the third millennium about to break on us, and there'll be all kinds of prophets and prophecies, by the way, in this next year, the Bible speaks to those questions by saying, you know, there really are 
real prophecies. And all you have to do is open the scripture to begin to see the myriad of prophetic statements that spill forth. Did you know there are 8,352 verses of prophecy in your Bible? Prophecy makes up 29% of the Old Testament, 22% of the New Testament. Walt Kaiser, who is a great Old Testament scholar, made this statement in his book, Back to the Future. He said, you know, the number of prophecies in the Bible is so large in their distribution, so evenly spread through both Testaments, that anyone should be alerted to the fact that he or she is dealing with a major, major component of the Bible. One third of Holy Writ is prophetic. In fact, the only books of the Bible that don't have prophetic statements in them in the Old Testament is Ruth and the Song of Solomon. In the New Testament, that little book Philemon and in 3 John. Every other book has prophetic statements. And unlike the the riddles and the oracles of ancient lore, which oftentimes, if you watched a TV series on things of the unknown, have to be stretched and pulled out of context to somehow fit to certain historical events, or even the, the more modern-day prophecies that are given in gads and a few hit home and are accurate, but most are inaccurate. The Bible's kind of prophecy has a whole different characteristic to it. First of all, it's clear. It's not cloudy, it's absolutely clear. It's tightly knit to the flow of history. And anyone who studies the prophetic statements can see it flow with history. It's extremely detailed in places. Amazingly so for the student of scripture. It's uniform in its presentation, even though its prophecies don't come from a single person. But the prophecies of the Bible are spread forth over many, many people in many different places under many different circumstances over thousands of years. And yet those prophecies put together have almost a miraculous uniformity in and of themselves, regardless of what took place later. But of course, the most dramatic characteristic of biblical prophecy is it's consistently accurate. At least as far as I know, and as far as all that I've studied, the Bible has never missed at any point in its prophetic predictions. Over 4,000 years, it's been speaking to us accurately about the future. You know, Jesus put it this way. He said, behold, <laughs> I have told you in advance. That's an amazing statement. He was speaking there of his second coming and all the detailed events that he was describing there on the Mount of Olives about his second coming, but just that statement in advance has huge implications theologically and philosophically. Because for anyone to say, I've told you in advance, is presupposing that he's been to the other side and has brought back sure, certain knowledge of the future. You know, let me briefly this morning mention three things as we open this door to the Bible and prophecy that kind of get us started in a new series that we're embarking upon this morning. Here's the first one. You know, first concerning how prophecy is broken down in the Scriptures, there's really two divisions of prophecy. It's very simple. It's just major prophets and minor prophets. There's nothing theologically astute about that, but if you were to open your Bible to, the, to your index and look at the Old Testament books, 
Most of the Old Testament is history until you pass by the Song of Solomon and suddenly you're confronted with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Lamentations and Jeremiah and Daniel. Those are the major prophets of the Old Testament because of the volume of content that they have. And really we could add one other major prophet to that from the New Testament. The only prophetic book really in the New Testament is purely prophetic and that's the, John's Revelation. But those are the major prophets because of their content. And then you start with Hosea, and then if you follow it in your index from Hosea all the way to Malachi, are all these little short books called the Minor Prophets. Short, pithy statements of prophetic literature that are primarily given to specific time periods and specific countries that uh, they are addressing at uh, that particular time in which they speak. So when you think of prophecy, think of two major components the voluminous major prophets and those small power pack book called the minor prophets. Then within those books, there are two kinds of prophecy. Okay, two distinct kind of prophecies. The first I call type A prophecy. Those kind of prophecies are the prophecies that retell truth with consequences. They retell truth with consequences. And what I mean by that is that the prophet's words are not so concerned with what we normally think of prophecy, and that is foretelling future events. But really what they're doing, these prophets in these moments, they're just simply foretelling truth that people already know, much like a pastor does on a Sunday morning from the pulpit as he reads over the scriptures and preaches. He just tells you things that you already know, but what he adds to it is the consequences. That's the prophetic side. He said, you know what God said? And he repeats it. And those prophets, as you read through Amos and Habakkuk and Haggai and Amos and those guys, when they speak, they're speaking to a people that should know the truth. But then he says, if you don't do that, this is going to happen. And if you do do this, this will happen. That's the prophetic part of it. So for instance, when we open up the book of Malachi, Malachi the prophet there is chiding the people for robbing God. They say, how are we robbing God? And he says, because you're not giving you're not giving out of the abundance that you have. And because you're not giving, and because you know God said to give, and you refuse to do that, look around you. And of course, in that moment in time, they could look around, and they were in the midst of a famine, and they were failing as a country, and those kind of things. He said, God told me to tell you this will continue. These are the consequences. On the other hand, God told me, if you will get back to doing what He's asked you to do, and I'm quoting Malachi here. He said, he will open the heavens and pour out a storehouse of blessing upon you and heal your land and heal your crops and heal this nation. Truth or consequences. But it's not this specific forecasting of the future as far as events and people. It's just around the prophetic material. I mean, the, the, uh, the time and situation in which the prophet's speaking. You know, you do that from time to time with a friend, really. That kind of prophecy, so to speak. Maybe not with the same degree of accuracy, but there are times when I counsel people and you talk to people and they're continuing in some kind of behavior and you will tell them, most of the time accurately so, you continue on this path, this will happen, right? If you turn from this path and come back to the Lord and begin to live a certain way, this will probably happen. Now, you may not want to call yourself a prophet, but you kind of step into their territory when you're forecasting the future as to consequences. Then there's type B prophecy. Type B prophecy is the one that's really the most dramatic prophecy and the most controversial, and that is future telling. And future telling with certainty, going way beyond 
your age, sometimes speaking hundreds of years past your lifespan, and then forecasting something specific, very specific, that will happen. So as the Reader's Theater kind of offered you were a number of events where prophets have spoken that way. At Christmas time, we celebrate the prophet Micah, who in a moment of speaking to his world in real time, in real circumstances, suddenly projects himself out of those into the future. And he says, out of you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, this little city too small to even be named among the clans of Judah, just a hick town, out of you will come a ruler of my people, an eternal ruler who has no beginning or end, and he will be the Messiah. Well, he spoke those words, and then 500 years went by. And then suddenly, with some dramatic celestial events, Bethlehem became the spotlight of the world, this little place, too little to be named in the roll call of the cities of Israel. Well, that's pretty dramatic. You have to sit there and ponder that for a while and think, how did he know? But that is future telling, this type B prophecy. Now, the reason I tell you those is because over the next 20 weeks or so, we're going to combine two different series together. We're going to call it under an umbrella, Prophets and Prophecy. And during this time, what we're going to do is that uh, Dan Gerald and Bill and Bill are going to touch on those minor prophets that I talked about. They're going to cover those books of Hosea and Amos and Haggai and men like that who spoke to their world in real time and help you sense the power of their message and what their themes were that are so accurate for today. At the same time, they're doing that. I'm going to be preaching along with them in the prophetic sections of Daniel. Now, Daniel has history and then it has prophecy. The first six chapters are history, then from chapters 7 through 12 are prophecy. So we're going to focus primarily in chapters 7 through 12. And I want you to know the reason I chose Daniel from that type B prophecy is because there is no other prophetic book in the Bible that really rivals Daniel in giving you a very clear and specific outline of all of human history. The flow of it, the events of it, the empires within it, and how it comes to a conclusion. Now, you're left to believe it or laugh about it. My job is to present the prophet as accurately as possible and let you ponder the wonders of the other side. And that's what we'll do in the weeks to follow. Now, I want to just give you some values of what I call type B prophecy, that feeling the future, so to speak. Here are four that you could just take with you as you leave. The first is this. This kind of prophecy confirms that the future is certain, not random. Regardless of how you and I may feel at any particular period of time, and there are certainly times in every generation where things become unstable and fearful, scary, whether it's a war, whether it's economic downturns or whatever. What prophecy reminds us of is that it's not faith that's driving this. It's not chance. It's not a few evil people. It's not an asteroid that's going to somehow come out, even though they tell us, you know, one's bound to hit sometime. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. What's driving all of this is God. He's moving it forward. He's moving history to an appointed end for His specific purposes that He has in mind. And He wants us to know that so we will catch His flow and step into His flow to maximize the life and breath that He has given us. 
As he told the prophet Isaiah, he says, just as I have planned it, just as I have planned it, this is the way it's going to happen. Now again, we're left at a, a jumping off point of belief or disbelief. But that's what the declaration says. And by making that declaration in advance, he settles us down and tells us that the future is not random. Trust me, it's certain. Take comfort in that. Secondly, prophecy of this sort advances our confidence in the God we believe in. Because there's no other religion, no other God, so to speak, if they should be called gods, who has so boldly and so accurately just let us peer into tomorrow. Confucius didn't do that. Buddha didn't do it. Joseph Smith tried to do it, but as he did it, we look and we see the errors of it. Islam doesn't do it. In fact, Islam has to go back and borrow the, a lot of the biblical prophecies. So what other is there in this regard? The answer is none of the above. There is not one. We have a special God who has been special to us in this regard. Third, prophecy brings a unique accountability to life. <laughs> it's like the man who went to Florida ahead of his wife for their Florida vacation, and she had to stay to finish up some business. And he got there, he checked into the hotel, and uh, decided to send word ahead to her before she came uh, through email. And so she, he did, but as he was sending the email message, he hit the wrong address. And so that email went to New York City because the woman to a woman who was grieving over the loss of her husband. And she went in and she turned on her email and up on the screen came these words, dearest wife, dearest wife, have settled in. <laughs> Everything is already prepared for your immediate arrival. <laughs> but be prepared, it sure is hot down here. With warmest regards, <laughs> your husband. Well, prophecy in many ways is like an eternal email. It really is. It's like someone who's gone before us and is sending back information helpful to us in order to be prepared. History's going somewhere. The king's decisions, the wars that take place, the government's that pass legislation, and our individual free wills that are working together like ping pong balls all over the place. All those look so random, and yet they're all being held together by a sovereign God who permits those things, and yet at the same time moves all of those things in an appointed direction down to an appointed destination with eternal consequences. And what prophecy does is just help us get a glimpse, sometimes just a pin ray of light into what is to take place. But it has huge, huge implications. And I want you to know that. Well, we have some incredible things here. Fourth, prophecy elevates the supernatural character of the Bible. It helps us to realize that what we hold in our hand is literally out of this world. There's not only comfort here, there's not only instruction here, there's not only direction here or forgiveness or wisdom, the future is here. And I hope that in the weeks to come, you will have a few 
supernatural sensations, I would hope. Somewhere along the line, as you're studying and looking and contemplating over what's being said, this book takes on more than just an more than just being an instruction manual so that you can be successful this week. It becomes a sacred text, a supernatural text, something that's it's almost to be revered in a special way by you. And the reason is because it should be revered by you. God has made that available to you. You know, this morning what I'd like to do to introduce this series is just let you sample a few illustrations of prophecy. Just to feel the chill of it. What it means to us. And I'd like to give you four that I think that kind of stand out that we can participate in because they have, we have ways of touching them more than some of the others. But here's the first one. The first one is this. You know, the Bible prophesies the return of Israel to the land of Palestine. Now, for some of you, you may have long since got, gotten over the miraculous nature of that. See, we get so caught up in movies about dinosaurs drawn from DNA, and we see so many uh, virtual realities that look real that we get, we get overwhelmed with all the stimulation. But it's all fantasy. And something like Israel comes along, which is reality, and it doesn't seem to have the same luster impact. We just go, okay, yeah, they became a nation, great, let's move on. But I want you to stop for a moment and just feel again the miraculous na nature of that nation. You know, that nation lay in ruins for 2,000 years. No nation ever came back from such a thing. The people were taken off into slavery to the four corners of the earth. What's even more mind-boggling to me was that just a few years, just a few short years before they actually became a nation, the greatest war machine that human history had ever known was systematically exterminating them by the millions. Can you imagine, can you imagine if you and I were out having coffee one morning in October of 1943? Can you imagine us even bringing up the fact that Israel would become a nation? Or 1944? Or when they walked into those death camps in 1945? Would you believe that Israel would become a nation? And yet out of those ovens, and out of those death camps, and out of those persecuted minority groups all over the world, in just a few years after the greatest drumming of a people in human history, the Holocaust, a nation came up. A little shoot. Those people are a miracle of prophecy. I want you to listen to what Amos the prophet said 2,700 years ago. Look at the screen for just a moment. He says this, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. Now, let me just stop right there just for a second. If you read the book of Amos, Amos is mad. And he's prophesying against Edom and all these others. And he said, I don't like you and I don't like you. He's it's God's... God's giving his denunciation of these sinful kingdoms. And as he goes along, he gets to Israel and says, I don't like you either. And then he goes on and prophesies the consequences. And he tells Edom they're going to be destroyed and they're never going to be again. There's going to be this other country, I'm going to destroy you and you'll never be there again. And then he gets to Israel and says, and I'm going to punish you too. 
But then he says, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Nevertheless, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountain will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved, and also, if that's not miraculous enough, let me give you a greater miracle. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities, and they will live in them. And they will plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will also plant them on their land. And they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Well, that was 2,700 years ago. Israel was a nation. They were destroyed. They did return. They were destroyed again. And then for 2,000 years, they sat there in that abandonment, wondering if they would ever again return. And, and there were people, can you imagine pulling out the sacred scrolls, Jewish or otherwise, and reading in 200 AD or 400 AD, or let's go to 800 AD, or how about 1100 AD? And, they're saying, and somebody asked the question, you think Israel will ever become a nation again? Well, I don't know, maybe in a couple of hundred years. Okay, 1500 AD, 1700 AD, 1945. Do you really think they will? It would take an incredible jumping the Grand Canyon type leap of faith to believe that. But the Orthodox Jew who believed God's Word believed it. Even great theologians, great systematic theologians that we would like couldn't even believe it. I remember picking up from my shelf the great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge who wrote a wonderful systematic theology but when he got to eschatology, future things, he made this comment about the nation of Israel. He said, the argument from the ancient prophecies must be invalid because it would prove way too much. If those prophecies foretell a little literal restoration of Israel, then, then they must foretell that the temple is to be rebuilt, the priesthood restored, sacrifices again offered, and the whole Mosaic ritual must be observed in its detail. This is utterly inconsistent with the character of the Gospels that there should be a renewed inauguration of Judaism. Now the guy's just speaking out of time and place. It's the 1800s. There's no way he can believe that. He thinks these prophecies must have a more figurative meaning. And then he says, Israel can't, be just, can't come back together. I mean, if Israel came back together, then we'd have to have things like the temple and stuff. And that leads me to the next thing. <laughs> temple will be restored. Because you know what? The Bible prophesies a future temple for Israel. You want to see that? Let me just give you one little glimpse of that. Turn to 2 Thessalonians just for a moment in your Bibles. And let's look at that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul here is uh, talking to this young church and he begins to talk about the coming of the Lord. The second coming of Jesus Christ, not the first. And as he does that, he mentions just drops, drops a few drops of detail about the second coming of Christ. And here's what he says, verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that is the coming of Christ, will not come. It's not going to come unless something comes first. And that's the apostasy. This great falling away of humanity from the living God. That's what's going to come first. And then after that, you're going to have the man of lawlessness to be revealed. 
the son of destruction, this character who we'll look at as we move through Daniel as the Antichrist. And then he says, when he comes, he'll do this. He'll oppose and exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And he'll come a place, a time, when he'll take his seat where? Tell me. In the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Well, when Paul wrote these words, there was a temple. But after Paul moved on and passed away, the temple, as you know, was destroyed. There is no temple in Israel now. And yet, as Paul gives us a glimpse in advance of the future of the end of time, he says that when this great ruler exalts himself, one of the ways he'll do that is by positioning himself in the temple. This sacred ground upon which now stands only the Osk of Omar, the second greatest holy site in all of Islam. And yet, he says it will be. Several years ago, I picked up Time Magazine and I started reading an article that was entitled, Is It Time for the Temple? And in it were some amazing things. It said that a task force had been formed in Israel called the Temple Institute. The director, Zev Golan, says that the purpose of this Temple Institute is to advance the cause of the temple and prepare for its establishment, not just talk about it. And so they have moved aggressively to make those kind of preparations. They're not trying to create a war, but they are trying to get an advance on this temple building. So what they've done is they've created a lot of the temple instruments according to the biblical specifications outlined in the Mosaic Law. They've created the harp and the lyre and the incense holder and those kind of things. They've put together all the priestly vestments according to the Mosaic Law using flax and six-string thread to make those things exactly as they're specified in the Mosaic Law. Meanwhile, they formed groups of students in the Talmudic schools to search for ways of trying in some desperate way to find lineages back so they can reestablish the line of Levi so that they can serve as priests in the temple. And at the same time, they were bringing embryos from Europe, the Time Magazine article said, to implant in cows in Israel in search of the perfect red heifer. Now, the red heifer is a very important object in the priesthood because they kill the red heifer and get his ashes and the priests purify themselves to serve in the temple through the use of this red heifer. And if you read your newspaper uh, a few months ago, there was a big outcry uh, over in Israel because they thought they had birthed the perfect red heifer in Europe which they thought was a sign, a signal, that God was about to give them favor to rebuild that third temple. Now the red heifer turned to be blemished, so it didn't quite work out, but here's the point. The point is, is there is movement now for that temple. Zev Golan made this statement. He said, no one can say how and no one wants to do it by force, but sooner or later, the temple will be built and we will be ready for it. You know what? I can stand here on the authority of God's Word and say there will be a temple. The reason I say that is not because I have anything to say, but I'm drawing upon those who God used, ordinary people with authentic spiritual lives, to speak through and say, this is how the end is being shaped up to finish history. And the temple's part of it. And I want you to know about it. A third great prophecy is this, that the Bible prophesies a key alignment of nations a key alignment of nations for bringing history to a close. We're going to see that in the book of Daniel. 
this empire comes together and Daniel mentions it using symbols that he even tells us it's going to be an empire of ten nations that are going to be loosely associated with one another but joined together under one dominant leader and through the events around those nations the end will come to a close. Now, it's interesting that uh, we'll see that those nations that the prophet Daniel points that those nations are an outgrowth of what we used to call the old Roman Empire. Now there have been moments to try to establish the Roman Empire. Charlemagne tried to do it in the 10th century with the Holy Roman Empire, but it was kind of a fizzle compared to the glories of old Rome. But you know, it's interesting that the Bible keeps pointing to that, that European continent says something's going to happen there special in regards to God's timetable. And watch for it. Nations aligning themselves with one another to become ultimately the politically and economic force of the world. In 1957, a group of Europeans and European leaders got together and they wrote out a treaty called the Treaty of Rome, of all names. And that Treaty of Rome was kind of the first wave of movement to begin to reassemble Europe into a unified whole. Since then, we've had the formation of the European Common Market that comprised 12 nations. And today we're seeing a merger, a greater merger of Europe. Keeping their individual identities, yes, but moving ever closer together. Back in the late 1980s, they talked about it as being the Eurostate. And we've gotten a little closer to the Eurostate because just a few weeks ago we had the what? The Euro dollar as being a single currency to bring down trade barriers and create greater commerce and those kind of things. There's even been the formation, though it has very limited powers, of a European parliament that now meets regularly in Brussels, Belgium. But when you bring those nations together and given the right circumstances, their GMP exceeds all the others of the world, including the greatest power on earth at this point, and that's the United States. Now I say that not to say, well, all of that means now we're there. No, I'm just showing you how a prophet 2,700 years ago could be talking about an empire that would come and go, but then would be reassembled with 10 nations and would create a great world force. And we go thousands of years without seeing any of that and seeing tribalism all over Europe. But then in the midst of that during our lifetime, whether this is the one or not, we see this movement drawing countries together in a fashion that at least is a shadow of what the prophet Daniel explicitly told us would happen. Finally, I want you to know that the Bible also prophesies a worldwide moral chaos out of which will give the ability of the Antichrist to arise. If you're in 2 Thessalonians, I want you to turn just a few pages over to 2 Timothy because when Paul is talking to Timothy here in this last of his letters, he, he mentions just a glimpse of what those last times will be like. Remember, he told us that before Christ comes again, there's a great apostasy. Now he fleshes out that great apostasy further when he makes this statement in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now there have been difficult times all throughout human history, but he says, this one is going to be really difficult. The word he uses there is only used one other time in the Bible, and in that circumstance, it's called exceedingly violent. So he says at the end, there's going to be some exceeding 
exceedingly great violence attached to this. And the reason why the force driving that is because in verse 2, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, on and forth. And then he says, brutal haters of God, down through all this. And in verse 5 he says, holding to a form of godliness. They're, they're kind of religious, but remember, they've denied the real power. And so that's the circumstance of the world. And you have this world that has grown increasingly fragmented, increasingly selfish, increasingly self-focused. And with that, as you and I know, when people don't have a common unity point, especially a noble one, as they move more into getting their rights, everybody becomes rights-oriented. Everybody has to have power to assert their rights. And with everybody gaining that power, they begin to war with each other. Just like Jesus said, at the end there'll be wars and rumors of wars. So you got this planet that all of a sudden starts reeling from all this instability. And in the midst of that, as Daniel will tell us later, in the midst of that, with everybody crying out, we need peace. This thing is out of control. Give us peace. There will be one who will arise who is skilled in words and rhetoric, who has the ability to spin things, to convince people, and he will draw people together and draw nations together and create treaties that ultimately will break down. But, but in this moment of time, he will seize that opportunity and he will bring peace to the world. He will be its savior for a time. But in the intoxication of that incredible power, this world emperor, so to speak, with all the spins that he can put forth on the people, with all the treaties and negotiations that he's been able to negotiate, suddenly it will start to break down. And when it breaks down, it suddenly collapses. And when it collapses, then the end will come. But he will be using this great nation or federation of nations to help him enforce it for a time, but it won't last. The Bible says, you want to know the future. These are some glimpses into it. But Daniel will flesh it out even further. Now let me conclude this morning by just giving you some differences that I think prophecy should make for us. Things that I want you to remember as we go through this series because all I'm doing is introducing it to you. But here's the things that I think that are most important. First of all, prophecy should strengthen our trust in the Bible. You know there are a lot of statements in the Bible like be pure and you go, be pure? Don't you understand the age in which we live? That just sounds like some archaic something that somebody came up with, okay? But you know, when we get prophecy and understand what God's doing, and we understand those words are out of this world, then maybe we begin to understand even in a better way, in a more trusting way, that the statement, be pure, is out of this world too. With the same amount of authority. I want you to know there's no body of literature anywhere that is as clear and cogent in predicting the future like the Scriptures. There's no body of literature anywhere where you can find support for its statements from archaeology, history, and science. There's no body of literature anywhere where certain futuristic statements that are found in the Bible thousands of years, predicted thousands of years before the time, actually come true. And some, like Israel, right before our very eyes. So that brings me back to what God told Isaiah. In Isaiah 14, He said to him these words, the Lord of hosts is sworn on the Bible. Surely just as I have intended it, so it will happen. And just as I have planned it, so it will stand. This is the way I'm going to do it. And nothing is going to change it. And you need to understand if I can make those statements, 
then the statements I make about you and your eternal destiny and what makes you successful in life and happy and healthy, would you listen to me? That's what its value is. Just helping us feel that authority a little clearer, sharper. Secondly, prophecy should encourage a life direction of spiritual responsibility. You know, in Dublin, Ireland, back in the 1800s, Thomas Huxley had just given a blistering attack on Christianity because he was a follower of Charles Darwin. At the end of that lecture, he was hurrying to get to his train. He jumped in the carriage and told the driver to drive fast. And so on they went across the city of Dublin until, it re until Huxley realized the driver didn't know where he was going. So he leaned out and said, do you know where you're going? And the driver came back and said, no, sir, I don't, but I'm driving just like you told me, very fast. And the reason I tell you that is because that's the way many of us live our lives, don't we? We have daytimers packed. We have opportunities galore. And we are driving very fast. But the question is, are we going forward? See, what prophecy does is it just tells us that God is moving history forward. And you're either swimming in the stream or upstream but you should take it seriously. And it should then lead you to say, you know, I need to order my whole life in the direction that God has revealed. That's why when Peter spoke to us in that last letter of his, 2 Peter, he makes this statement to the, every church that will ever live after him. He makes this statement. He says, since we already know how everything is going to end, okay, then how much more we should live lives of holiness and godliness. You see the connection? If we've been let in on in advance what everything's gonna, what, what's going to happen in everything, should that not excite us and encourage us to get in the flow all that much more? Then the last thing, and I want you to turn over to the book of Revelation, that last prophetic book and the last book of the Bible, prophecy should inspire worship. It should inspire worship. Here's what happened to John. You know, in a few weeks, I'm going to be on the Isle of Patmos where John was in prison, standing there. And there he was, taken out of the flow of really current events, put in a prison, that's where he would die. And yet in the midst of that, God sent holy messengers to reveal the future. And so he concludes his book this way. I want you to look at verse 6. He concludes his book this way, and really it should be kind of what's on our heart as we move through this uh, series on prophecy, he says this, verse 6 of 22, And the angel said to me, These words, all that I've spoken to you, all the glimpses of the future that I've given to you, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, you see, that's why they had a uniform message. That's why they all spoke out of one voice over thousands of years in different circumstances. Because what was moving them moving each of the spirits of the prophets was God Himself. He sent His angel to show to His bondservant the things which must shortly take place. And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is He who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. If you want to worship because of what you've heard, then worship God. 
My prayer is that as we go through this series together, as we get some glimpses of the future and feel the authority of this book, that what's going to happen to you, young or old, young or old, is that your heart will be enlarged and your spirit will have a more desirous need to worship the God of glory and the future. Let's pray together. Father, we pause here now just for a moment to, to contemplate what we've heard. For many of us, just hearing these things about the future may excite us. But Lord, we want to take just a moment and ask You to help us feel Your authority over all of life and history, including our history. We understand, Father, that You have chosen to give us certain bounded freedoms. We can act silly. We can act sinfully. We can blaspheme You. But that doesn't change the fact that You're moving our world towards an end. So for my brothers and sisters in Christ, the question as we close is, what sort of lives ought we to live this week in light of what we've heard about the end? Give us grace, Father, to answer that question. Use the spirit that inspired prophets to speak to our world, our circumstances, our place on the planet, to touch us where we live. There may be one thing here today in every person's life there may be just one person here with one thing that needs you to say, I'm in control. We need to work on this. Father, help us to hear your voice. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.